we've been talking about the subject of salvation going on N.T. Wright's series called Thinking Through Salvation. In our final segment today, we examine the fundamental aspects of salvation, including who is saved, and, it's, and it emphasizes or emphasis in, its, in our current life. We'll also re-examine initial assumptions about salvation and common notions of heaven, questioning the validity of a disembodied, otherworldly heaven as depicted in the Bible. Now our speaker is N.T. Wright, whose full name is Nicholas Thomas Wright. He's a prominent theologian, scholar, and author known for his profound contributions to the fields of biblical studies and Christian theology. Born on December 1, 1948 in Morpeth, North Berlin, United Kingdom, Wright's academic career has been marked by a commitment to exploring the historical and theological context of the New Testament in early Christianity. Wright has held several prestigious academic positions, including serving as the Bishop of Durham in the Church of England, and he's widely recognized for his rigorous scholarship and his ability to bridge the gap between academic theology and broader Christian community. His writings, which include numerous books and articles, have had a significant impact on contemporary discussions surrounding Jesus, the resurrection, and the Christian faith. N.T. Wright's work has not only shaped theological discourse, but has also sparked thoughtful dialogue and debate among theologians, clergy, and lay people alike. His dedication to a more comprehensive understanding of the Bible and its implications for Christian belief and practice continues to influence and inspire individuals around the world. And with that, we present you with part four. In this collection of videos, we're thinking through how we understand and perhaps misunderstand the whole notion of salvation. In this series of videos, we're looking at the question of salvation, this glorious word which Christians from day one have always celebrated, and we're setting it in its large context of the whole biblical story. And in a previous video, we looked at three elements of salvation, the what, the where, and the how, and we're now going to finish that with the when, the why, and the who. The when is a tricky one because I know many Christians who will talk about the moment when the gospel first burst upon their consciousness and they were aware of the love and presence and healing touch of Jesus and they talk about that moment as the when, the when that they were saved. Somebody will say, I was saved on February the 15th, 1972 or whatever it was. I know what that means and of course it reflects that deep personal experience of having been wandering around either in sin or in doubt or in fear or whatever and suddenly realizing God is on my side. God is with me. God has loved me and has rescued me. And so I don't want to take that away, but in the New Testament, again and again, the when doesn't get answered by when you believed, when you first were aware. The when gets answered by when God did it in Jesus. Paul says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And that's the moment when it happened. And it's as though when Jesus died on the cross, the New Testament seems to see it 
as though there's a, there's a cosmic shockwave going through the universe which says everything is different now. Basically, evil and corruption and decay has had time called on it so that even if the world rebels against the gospel, there's a sense that it knows it's rebelling against something which has happened and is going on happening. So that when then somebody, any individual, any group of people, any family, plug into that and come to know the love of God for themselves, it's natural that they would, uh, if it's been a dramatic experience for them, it isn't for everybody, but if it is, then that they would date that. Yes, that's when it happened. But just as throughout the story of salvation, throughout the story of the Bible, it isn't about us going to God. It's about God coming to be with us. Where did that happen? Well, it happened primarily when God came in person, in the person of Jesus, to give his life as a ransom for many. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever dot, 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 the giving of the Son is the primary when, and the whoever takes its place as the consequence of that. So that's how the when works. And the when, of course, issues out in so many different ways. I have known and ministered to and with Christians from different backgrounds. For some, the moment of a personal response to a gospel message in a preached sermon was the moment when it all happened. For others, it was only when they finally said yes to baptism and submitted to being plunged into the water of baptism that they had that sense of the refreshing new life, particularly I've found this in people who've come from very different cultures who actually understand that baptism really is a dying to an old self and a rising to the new. So in the New Testament, coming to faith and baptism, which go together very closely, even if chronologically they may be separated, they have to do with the personalizing of the when. But again, both faith and baptism look back to what God did in, through, and as Jesus. What about the why of salvation? Well, there are two things which you have to say to why salvation. On the one hand, the love of God. On the other hand, the fact of human sin and death. Salvation is what happens when those two come together. Why? We need salvation. If you don't think there's any problem about dying, if you don't think that you have a sin problem, you may not think you have a need for salvation. But all human beings know in their bones that things are not as they should be, that we yearn for justice, but we mess it up, that we know that relationships are hugely important, but we ruin them as well, and so on and so on. There is There seems to be a glitch in the universe and in the human makeup. And salvation is about being rescued from those glitches, about God coming to the place where they were happening. So salvation is why? Because of the mess that we're in and the mess that the world is in in consequence. But salvation is also why? Because of the love of God. It comes back again and again. God so loved the world. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, and so on and so on. The covenant love of God, and it's the love of the creator God, the God who said from the beginning, let there be so that there would be a world which was other than God, which is an extraordinary idea. And then when God says, let there be a people of God, a people in whose midst I will come to dwell, it's all to do with what Christian theologians have called grace. The grace which says, God takes the initiative. God wants to come and dwell with us. He's done it in Jesus. He does it now by the Spirit. One day at Jesus' second coming, that will be complete. 
So the how, the when, the why, and then the who. Who gets saved? Anyone, anywhere who believes in Jesus. Now, some theologians, some teachers have tried to put fences around that to stop it seeming too easy. But I remember here in Oxford when I was a student many years ago, somebody asking a question of a wise teacher who had spent a whole hour explaining how Jesus' cross worked, so to speak, how what we call the theology of the atonement functioned. And somebody said in the question and answer period, how much of this does somebody have to believe before they can be a Christian? And I remember that wise teacher smiling and saying, very little something about the love of God, something about their need, and something about those two coming together. Everything else can be explained, can be filled in, can be learnt, but that's what it's all about. Anyone can come, a child, uh, an old person, anyone from any culture. The who of salvation is anybody who is prepared to say, I hear this message of the love of God. I turn from the corruption and decay of the world and of my own life. The technical term for that is repentance, saying sorry for the ways that I have contributed to the messing up of God's world and of other people's lives and my own life, but then reaching out to, to grasp the one who has reached out and grasped me. That's what it's all about. There's an old story about a bishop. Um, I suspect it was Bishop Westcott in the end of the 19th century, but I don't know that for sure. On a train, and he was not wearing his bishop clothes, so he wasn't recognizable as such, but alas from the Salvation Army, was sitting next to him, and as Salvation Army ladies would do, she said, are you saved? And the bishop replied, it depends whether you mean sothes, sodzomenos, or sotheisomenos which are Greek words which mean saved, being saved, or going to be saved. Because in the New Testament, the language of salvation is applied to something that happened once and for all in the past. In hope we were saved, says Paul. It's past. Jesus has done it. We are part of that. But we are being saved. Luke talks in Acts about those who were being saved. And that, that's it's a kind of a continual process on the way to salvation. And then one day we will be utterly fully saved when we are raised from the dead when jesus returns and makes his world over again we will be saved so we need to hold on to all three and we live the story of salvation as part of that great biblical story from genesis to revelation in this series of videos we've been talking about salvation within the whole bible story and, as I've said before, many people, when they hear the word salvation, they think of dying and going to heaven. And I suspect that people on the street, whether Christian or not, would have that meaning of the word in their heads, in their imaginations. And people might say to me, even after all I've been saying in this series, so what's wrong with the idea of dying and going to heaven? And the answer is partly, well, there's nothing so wrong with it because if by that you mean that there is a God who looks after people after and through their death and a God who has prepared for those who love him things which pass human understanding and imagination if that's what you mean by it then okay hang on to that that's great it's just that it's 
quite noticeable that the New Testament never uses the word heaven for the state or the place where people go or what they are after they've died. And that should give us cause to, to pause and think a bit, um, because actually the New Testament, when it tells the story of human salvation, tells the story of resurrection, that when we die, we go to be with the Messiah, with Jesus himself, which is far better than the present life. But then there is a whole other world when Jesus comes again to complete what he launched in his own public career and in his death and resurrection. So that on another level, if we then start thinking about, well, going to heaven's the real thing, that can take away from the imperative to be kingdom of God people here and now, the imperative actually to make a difference in God's world. Most Christians, even if they embrace the going to heaven narrative, still know in their bones that they're supposed to be people of love, of generosity, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, who will work for those things in God's world. But from time to time, there are preachers who say, you shouldn't be worried about that because the important thing is to get people into heaven. I remember, again, when I was a student, somebody who was giving himself to work with the poor and the homeless on the streets of London and who was doing an amazing work and I listened to this man talking about his work and in the question and answer somebody said to him um, wouldn't it be good if we could find out why these people are homeless why they're destitute and actually address the underlying causes and to my sorrow the person in question backed right off and he said there's nothing we can do about that until jesus returns all we can do is some band-aid work in the present time and i remember thinking then and i think very much now that is simply a cop-out however much good work he was doing there are structural issues which can and should be addressed that happened obviously in the early 19th century with the abolition of the slave trade and that was done by people who were resolutely opposed to the dichotomy between going to heaven on the one hand and making the world a better place on the other it was done by people who held those heaven and earth visions together and together they made a radical difference in transforming God's world. Or think more recently of the abolition of apartheid in South Africa. That was done particularly by people like Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who refused to think that salvation meant simply going to heaven. He saw that that was an excuse made by people who said, therefore, we don't need to change the system, especially when the system was serving their own privilege, their own aims and power and all the rest of it. And so again, it's a matter of heaven and earth coming together. And it's so easy to be distracted from that. But then people will say, so what you're saying is we build the kingdom of God by our own efforts here and now? Absolutely not. Paul talks about my fellow workers for God's kingdom. He doesn't say we are building the kingdom. He says we're building for the kingdom. And the illustration which I've used many times for this is that of the stonemasons working on the great cathedral. I was once privileged to take part in the running of, of one of the cathedrals in the English Midlands, and there was a stonemason's yard just down the road, which had been there for hundreds of years. And I imagine a stonemason five, six, seven hundred years ago being told he had to carve and chip away at this bit of stone and the master mason has told him you've got to do this and this and this and if somebody had said what are you doing he wouldn't say I'm building the cathedral he would say I'm working for the cathedral but then one day when the master mason would come and would gather up all the carved stone 
and put it up on the rickety old medieval scaffolding, the mason, the, 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 the stone carver, would look up at the west front of the cathedral and see his small bit of stone meaning far more in its new setting than it had possibly meant when he was just doing what he'd been told then. He wasn't building the cathedral, he was building for the cathedral. Something of that same thought is what's happening when we as God's image bearers are taking our responsibilities seriously in the present world. We are called to be the royal priesthood. Revelation chapter 5 praises God because by the death of the Lamb we have been purchased, rescued, saved, not so that we can hang around and just go to heaven and that's the end of it, but so that we can be the royal priesthood. How does that work? We are called to do things, different things, many thousands of different vocations different things which all together contribute to building for the kingdom, to being signpost makers for the kingdom. The problem with signposts is, of course, people ignore them. And in the New Testament, we see this, that there are things which happen, which the apostles see are genuine signs to God's new creation, which will happen when Jesus returns. But many people hate that because it calls them to account and tells them they're going the wrong way, as indeed they are. And so the fact there being signs doesn't mean there's a smooth, easy progress. Far from it. Often the signs, as uh, was said to Mary in the temple in Luke chapter 2, can be signs that are spoken against. And that's the story of the church, is a being signpost makers, whether or not people want to pay any attention to it. But these are true signs of what's to come. Just like in the life of the church, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the bread-breaking meal, these are signposts to God's future. Or if you like, they are little bits of God's future coming forwards to meet us in the present, to remind us and to energize us to be people of God's future even in the present. So we are called to be, as I've said before, small working models of new creation. This is the story of salvation. We are saved ourselves in order to be signs of salvation to the wider world. And those signs of salvation are partly that in the life of the church, people ought to see, tragically they often don't see, signs of reconciliation and healing and hope, which people in their, know in their bones the world desperately needs. But also because when in the New Testament, Paul and others talk about the church doing good works, Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about God having prepared good works for us to go ahead and do them. He's not meaning simply keeping one set of moral rules. That's very inward looking, very moralistic. Obviously, behavior matters. Paul takes that for granted. The good works are the things the church does in and for the world. William Temple said the church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Right from the beginning, taking their cue from Jesus, the church was into healing, the church was into education, the church was into the care of the poor, and those work out in many, many different ways. These are the signs that God's new creation is on the way and will continue, no doubt with suffering and false turns and mistakes made, until the day when Jesus returns to complete that work of salvation and we will look back 
and praise God for a rescue which has the exodus as its backdrop, the return from exile as its closer screen, and then the achievement of Jesus at the heart of it all. And we will praise God that thereby we have been, much to our surprise, and despite our own unwillingness and unfittedness, we have been part of that whole work of salvation, not for ourselves only, but for and in God's whole creation. What kind of things did you hear? For those of you in the live stream congregation, you can communicate your thoughts, ask questions, respond to questions posed, as well as submit prayer, prayer requests by typing any of that into the chat window on your device or text it right now to this number, 720-878-3323. We're monitoring those two resources. Type it into the chat or text us, 720-878-3323. All right, what did anybody hear in any of that that you have a comment about? Barb, are you just adjusting your glasses or you have, okay. Barb yes. has a, yay, Lord. Uh, come on. She's praising the Lord. All right, she's praising the Lord. I have uh, a question and a comment. And the the, I'll start with a comment. I liked his description of salvation that were, and I loved his uh, picture that he gave us of the mason worker mm. and then putting the cathedral together. Mm. I thought that was, uh, <clears throat> so we're building for the cathedral and we are people of God's picture of what the future is going to be. And then uh, he said, uh, God's new creation is on the way, and then God will put the finishing touches on it when everything is said and done. So I thought that was a great picture and a great stepping stone of how things are getting done. So that's my comment. And then uh, he focused a lot on the scripture uh, for those who believe in Jesus and talking about salvation. So what is Genesis gathering belief on who will be saved? Because he focused on those who believe in Jesus. Mm -hmm. I'll wait. I want to talk. So great question. Uh, great comment, thank you. Yes, I, I loved that example. I, I, I agree. I too made some notes as he was talking about that. I've studied the works of N.T. Wright for a decade. He's written over 85 books. And I'm fairly convinced about NT's position on this but I'm going to just keep or reserve my comments as far as NT's position to what you heard in the video because if we just walk away from what we just now heard and take it at face value 
it seems that salvation is conditional and it's based and will be given to those who believe. Raising the question, well, what about those who don't believe? At least the way that we require it, the way that we know believing. I made a note here as he was talking through that, Barb. Who gets saved? And he said, anyone who believes in Jesus, didn't he? He said that. But then he also gave an example where he was in a classroom type setting and somebody, either that or it was being rehearsed for him by this individual. And this individual was asked, so what must one do to be saved? And this individual, and he said, wisely responded, very little. Now see, I, I happen to know based on many of the things I've studied from NT that that would be actually very much in keeping with his personal position here. I also wrote, wrote down, he said, there's something about the love of God and our need that just comes together. And, and so the when isn't answered by me. God did that back when death, burial, and resurrection. Now, I'm going to give you, because you asked very poignantly, you asked very clearly, what is the gathering's position, and hence what is my personal position on this. We would differ, if taken at face value, we would differ some and have a little bit different take and outlook on who is saved than what you heard presented this morning. We see and have come to a place of understanding that our believing here on earth affords us, opens the door and makes available to us the now salvation. And keep in mind salvation isn't getting saved from doing bad things and going to heaven. Throughout this whole series, NT's been very clear on that. This is not a moral question about uh, stopping doing bad things and doing right things so that I can leave this earth and go to heaven. In fact, as NT said over and over and over, heaven isn't even used in the New Testament in that context of salvation. Some people would call what I believe and what the gathering has embraced and teaches universalism. Now there's different levels of universal thought and doctrine. I believe in T from what I've studied is more of a universalist than he is a dedicated evangelical you must believe you must follow the formula in order to be saved or else you're not going to be saved and you will go to hell but let's just say based on this morning one must 
follow a set of practices, steps, procedures in believing to be saved or else they're not. We would reject that. We believe that what Jesus did, number one, he did before the foundation of the earth. Not just when he was physically here, died, was buried, and rose again. But before the foundation of the world, the scripture talks about, and there's a number of places where it says this and talks about how, that Jesus was crucified. Jesus was, Jesus died. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So in God's heart and mind, this happened actually from eternity past. Number two, our context for salvation, and really my foundational passage, Barb, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world not just believers, to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So let's re-enter now the moral issue because Western evangelicalism has made it about being saved from an immoral life, becoming a good person, and then you can go to heaven. We reject that notion of, quote, salvation based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and a number of other passages. God is not counting your trespasses against them, against you. They've been completely removed. Let me caveat and say, sin is not a moral issue, it's a health issue. It's a disease. So we believe the model for salvation is more of a hospital than a courtroom where your legal morality is decided and are you good enough, have you done the right things, now you can go to heaven. See, that would be a courtroom model of reconciliation or salvation or rescue. We, we have disbanded from that. We used to embrace that. That used to be our model. Sin is something that entered however your theology allows for that. Sin, evil, destruction entered as a disease and Jesus took that in an exchange somewhat like a virus that he consumed in his death on the cross and he put to death, sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. Sin and evil and all that was wrong was consumed and put to death in the body of Jesus. For every human being that's ever lived is living now and will live. So your salvation is something God did. It does not require you to believe. If by salvation you're talking about an afterlife 
with God where you are reconciled to him and will live for eternity in his presence. But keep in mind, it's been clear in this series, salvation is not talking about that specifically. Salvation is talking about the rescue and deliverance, think Exodus, right? Genesis is creation and relationship and family and so forth. Exodus is where they wound up in what? Captivity and bondage, a type of sin and what sin has done to humankind. But God came and rescued them. He delivered them. Some people have a problem with the word rescue. I personally don't because it's used in Colossians by Paul how that we were rescued from darkness. I believe in being rescued from darkness. It just doesn't have anything to do with me being a good person. It's something God did in Christ for all humanity. You say, well, are you saying that a person, what if they go to their grave and they didn't believe on Jesus? Well, that was a very unfortunate way to live on this planet without God in their life, without Jesus in their life, in all of the incredible things that could have been different now, that doesn't mean they had a terrible life. Many people go to their grave and their lives were pretty positive. It's just that it's not morality or good or bad or how you lived that has anything to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So when somebody asks me, so you're a universalist, I say, well, I'm actually a historical reconciliationist because universalism just has so many nuances and extremes and some things that I'm not sure I do embrace but I am a historical reconciliationist I believe that God for all history past has reconciled every human being to himself and whether you believe that or not is not going to make a difference in where you spend eternity. It will make a difference in how you spend life on this earth. Very, very definitely. That was a long answer to a really short question. So, so Jeff, you, you, you would yield your pulpit and show videos where somebody states a different position than your own? Absolutely. I believe so much in that discussion of so many other things where N.T. took this. Number one, making clear, heaven isn't about leaving earth. Heaven is where God brings heaven to earth. Salvation is God coming to us, not us becoming good and leaving and going to him. I love that. He made that very clear. Secondly, nobody in all of my reading has ever combined salvation with our corporate responsibility in this world to be just and to serve community. Did you hear him? The church is the only organization in the world that exists to help and serve its non-members to love 
to serve, to do good to, to save, to rescue its non-members. That's what we do. I have not always been about that, I admit, but I'm becoming more and more and more about that, and it's because of teaching like this by brothers like N.T. All right, other questions? We do have some comments in the chat here, so... Uh, Ralph says, in regards to your question, Barb, and for anybody who might be watching who's not familiar with this gentleman, he's a regular part of our congregation. He does happen to join us of necessity. Uh, he can only join us by live stream because he lives in Switzerland. But he is a regular member here. And so he comments, wonderful question, Barb. People accepting Jesus become aware of their relationship with God and help others mature. The Greek word does not mean salvation, but becoming whole, sozo. That I'm throwing that in. Sozo is the Greek word, sozo, becoming whole, the whole person. Love that. If I need to do very little, salvation still is conditional. So picking up on what N.T. said, we would have a disagreement with N.T. Ralph and I both would. Salvation still is conditional in that case if there's very little that you have to do. But becoming whole is more like maturing and becoming who we already are, becoming aware of ourselves as God. Now, I, I would differ with anybody, and I'm not sure, I haven't asked Ralph if, if literally that's we are God. I, I differ with that a bit. I still believe in sons and daughters and children that I have as DNA, things like that. If we believe that salvation is necessary, we still believe that we are separated from God. If we believe that sin is a disease, the right translation would be healing. Amen. But if we see sin as immaturity, as unawareness, and therefore not living up to our potential to make whole, quote, to make whole, then that becomes the concept. To make whole becomes the concept. Not looking from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's not about right and wrong, saved or lost, healthy and sick. It's about a relationship of growth. Now, I happen to know uh, Ralph well enough to know that this is, th this is where he is centered. And this is where he teaches out of, is maturing that what happened in the garden, and by the way, he would not be alone in this. If you go back to the patristic fathers, the early church fathers who were closest to Jesus' actual death, burial, and resurrection, like within 100 to 150, 200 years, some 300, but there are early church fathers such as Origen and others who would be right in line with this, in fact, saying that Genesis is not a literal happening or event, but allegorical, and that the fall was not a moral fall or failure, but it was a covering and a falling in our understanding of who we are originally. And so salvation becomes, in my term, N.T. would share this, a rescue out of that, well, I, Ralph and I differ there. He doesn't like the word rescue, and, and I do. I, I like it because I see Paul using it, in particular in Colossians, how that we are rescued out of darkness. See, I think that Exodus picture, narrative, is still very healthy for people. I, God rescues us out. He delivers us out of darkness. But 
I, I, I so love what Ralph is saying here about this maturing, this, this healthy deliverance from, quote, sin, all right? You're in the hospital of maturing, of coming to know who God has really made you to, to be. Other questions, comments, texts? Are there any texts? Yes, okay. So we're going to grab... We have a couple minutes left because we still have... Uh, we we still have a a, a brief uh, video that sort of encapsulizes, especially today. It's just short, and I want you to see this. We played it in first service, and it's so powerful. We're going to play that, and then we have communion and prayer requests. So there are not any um, texts. But I was thinking, you know, in the very beginning, he said, uh, the when is when Jesus did it, not when we decided we were going to participate in what Jesus did. But as we know, and, we've, and many of us have said, well, what day were you saved? And for those of us who were taught that you had to accept Jesus, we have put a date on that. But I think that whenever it is that for those of us who, as it were, accepted Jesus, this is part of that yet being saved, yet being made whole, yes, being yet saved. maturing that Ralph is talking about. That's just one of the possibilities as we begin to grasp what Jesus did. Of course, that's revolution can, can be revolutionary. And you know what? That first time I ever grasped that was not the last time that I had revolutionary epiphanies and understanding. There's word. been other revolutionary epiphanies Epiphany. throughout my life that you, if you, you know, you could call born again or born from above. It's, it, it's new information. It's brand new or it's brand new revelation about information that changed my life or our lives. So I see that as, again, whether you want to call that um, yet being saved or if you want to although I understand what Ralph is saying here about salvation, it has an indication of being separate from God, but if we want to call it maturing, you know, or as you pointed out, there are people who don't do that. They don't open their hearts to what's already been done. They don't open their heart to, to the possibility of God and, and, and very possibly miss out on some of these maturing possibilities. But what we're talking about, and as people who are wanting to follow God, you know, all of these things, it's a, it, is this, as Ralph said, a constant maturing that we have traditionally called yet being saved, Yeah. whether that's exactly that's accurate or not, it. but I think that's what it's meant to mean, is that I'm becoming more whole, I'm, there's, there's a greater maturity uh, in our lives. Another reason I like N.T.'s approach is it's not all or nothing. He really bridges cross-denominationally with people who the sheer shock of what I've presented in terms of more of a universalist approach would just be too much. And you heard N.T. say, look, if what you need is a date that you can go back to and say, that's when I had an epiphany of what God did for me and I believed it then okay wonderful and see I'm, I'm as a pastor I'm, I'm kind of more like that I, I just want to get you into family 
I want to get you into fellowship. And I know Holy Spirit is going to peel back the layers of onion where all of us in our immaturity are living well below our godhood. Mm, okay. We have so, I, I want to get these couple of things done here. We have prayer requests. I am. So I just want to be sure we have some prayer requests. Okay. Would you please take a moment, key in, turn up the volume on your, uh, on your device there, put down anything else you're doing, and, and give this your attention, and then we'll take communion and have prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you. 